Hello, I'm Matthew Frost, and you're listening to Fully Scored. The headlines today. Roland reminisces. Internationally renowned cornet soloist and former principal cornet of the international staff band Roland Cobb shares stories about his life and times as a Salvationist musician. Dorothy discusses. Dr Dorothy Gates joins us for an analysis of Brian Bowen's masterpiece, My Comfort and Strength. Deserted DMD. Divisional music director Peter Kim joins us on Arid Island album. And finally, Hot Seat Hopefuls. The band mastermind Hot Seat is open to all in this very special edition. All this and more still to come in episode 36. But now it's time to head over to this report recorded in Hendon, North London. Our interviewer has this to say. So, Roland, thank you ever so much for agreeing to uh, join us for an interview today. It's a real pleasure to speak to you. Very happy to do it. Very happy to do it. And I'm really looking forward to hearing some stories about your life and your time as a Salvationist and a Salvationist musician, specifically. You're actually the third generation of the Cobb family that we've had on the podcast. Uh, We interviewed your son, Stephen, in our very first episode, and Philip in our fourth episode. You must be incredibly proud of all the achievements that your family uh, continue to make and the impact that they've had on many lives in the oh, Salvation Army. Oh, very much. And it all started, I suppose, with my dad and uh, being interested. And uh, I showed a bit of promise as a youngster and he made sure that I had some tuition. So I went to a bloke called J.C. Dyson and it was uh, one of the best things I've was ever for me. A, he was a terrific teacher, and he introduced me to the Arban, of course. And Arban, didn't know anything about the Arban. And um, that, that was, uh, and I must have been about 12 then. But then uh, we had that recommendation from Archie Wiggins. He was the editor of one of the army papers. Uh, he had a son, Bram that was a promising cornet player as well. So they had quite a bit of competition, incidentally, <laughs> going on. Bram was going to, to him, and so I, I, I followed. And it, it uh, a big, big turning point for me. And he was a good teacher. And um, it, it was right for me and my my makeup and my personality and the world. And, you know, they'd be a great encourager. But I learned, I learned a great deal. And then... Um, in 1944, the war was coming to an end, and um, they weren't calling up for the military anymore. They were calling up for the coal mines. So I would, I would have been a, a betting boy, if you know your social history. You, know, you had to go down the coal mines instead of the... But I could play a little bit. So um, I applied to, to join the, the, the guards' band. Excellent. And um, got the audition, and I can remember always... I played Zelda. Very nice. Apart from a, few, a, bit of, a bit of sight reading, um, and that went that went well. But this is all the, the wars I say was coming to when in 1944, and uh, one of the only th- ways that you could get into the music profession in those days was to have a, um, wealthy parents with a, you, where you could afford to go to the college or the academy or something of that nature, or you had another route which would be in, in, into a guard's bag because they were regarded as professional musicians. I mean, they weren't soldiers, they're soldiers today. Mm. And they had to do mar- marches and 
assault courses and all sorts of things, <laughs> apparently now. But music was very, very important. But uh, all I had to do was a fortnight's training on Sandown race course, marching up and down. And after two weeks, uh, went, went, went into the band. Was that the Welsh Guards Welsh band? Welsh Guards band, there, that's right. And that, that, was a, that was a very good training. And go along there, and of course, already established there was the principal trumpet of the of the London Philharmonic, the second trumpet of the LSO, and all these sort of people. And then there was me, you know, still playing Star Lake, if you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, but coming in, but what I learned from those people by listening, listening hard to these people, was amazing. And I practiced like mad. And. Uh, it was it was a very interesting time. I mean, we did we did do military things. It was all it was all music, and we, the summer season we had sixteen weeks, going from one seaside to another, starting at Hearn Bay, Hearn Bay, and of course you didn't have um, that. That's the only live music that that was going really in those days, mm. and people used to go along and they say, oh yes, it's a Salvationist now, and uh, and uh, so. In Cambria, so they all went along to to listen to me. And in those days, <laughs> I used to have to play solos, but I got um, sixpence in the old company. That's two and a half p right. for every solo I played. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so but, but we started off in Hearn Bay and going all the way to the Worthing, Folkestone, you know, Eastbourne, Bournemouth. And, and finishing up down in down in Plymouth, you know, and uh, but it, it was wonderful experience for me, mm-hmm. and so experience and having little old ladies coming up to me <laughs> after I placed the da 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 would you accept this? <laughs> so I, which, which is all very sweet and all very nice, but that, 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 that was the culture. So I'm sure that most listeners will be aware that for a long time you served as principal cornet of the International Staff Band and were a very prominent soloist within the band. When did that transition happen from the Welsh Guards Band to the Staff Band? Well, I was still in the Welsh Guards. I was still in the Welsh Guards. I was treated extremely well by the, by the Guards director of music and uh, allow, allowing me to do lots of things. I mean, for instance, um, when he came to tours, a six-week tour, they would release me for the whole six weeks. Amazing. Yes. My pay went on, but, uh, you know, but said, yes, yes, OK, yes, you go. And they, they, that, that sort of thing. And, uh, yes, Bernard Allen phoned up my dad's butcher shop and said, good uh, job. Would your boy be interested in joining the staff band? Um, Tolliday was having to move his work, having to go to Scotland right. to do some work, so there was a vacancy. So I went along, and that's where it all started, really. Fantastic. And then, which would be 1948. So what was the band like in that era? What was the well, expectation? Well, I mean, it made up... Um, 95% were officers, of course. They were appointed by the chief of the staff to, to, the, to the international staff band. So you had people that wanted to be there and, and lots of people that didn't want to be there. Really? Oh, yeah. Right. 
and it was held together really by having a, a, a few corner men that, that were decent players. When I went into the staff band, the, the principal corner was a bloke called Frank Linden, who used to was made, made got his reputation and playing duets with Bernard Adams. But he was a very nervous player, was um, Bernard Adams, and uh, he played he played he played well. But uh, I think the only recording that he did, I think, was Heaven of Rejoicings. Were you one of the first military musicians to go into the Star Band? Yes. What was that I was. like uh, to sort of break those boundaries? Well, in a way? I mean, uh, it, it was uh, it was very interesting because. Uh, every opportunity that they could, they would invite the director of music to come and be the chairman. We used to have chairman and we could announce the items. And so he would come in and see exactly what I, what I was doing. Excellent. I believe that quite a big part of the band's ministry in those days was recordings as it is today. And I believe it would have been 78 records that were still the norm sort of then. <laughs> what was the process like recording? Well, I mean, they were terrible. They were frightening because we had to... <laughs> I mean, when I tell you, Bernard Adams would come to me and say, Let's, you've got to get this flipping right. This is costing the Salish Army money. Right. You know, you're threatening me. I said, no, you can't, you can't, you can't keep wasting this flipping tape. Like this, you, you, you've, you've got to get it right. But I had a lot of good training because we did a lot of broadcasting with the military bands, and it was all live in those days. You had to get it right first time. And in later years, so lots of people in the band, they, they couldn't understand why I could manage to, to get this. I said, no, no, Cobby never, never makes a mistake. I said, you, know, you must be joking. But, but they, 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 that was a reputation because that's the way that, that you were trained. You had one go, one go only. For instance, um, Wondrous Day, we did the side two first. Right. To, to get over little bits and pieces. And uh, I was happy to say, I did that in one go. And he was, they were so relieved. But th th that's, that's how it was. And it was hard. It was hard. Whilst you mentioned Wondrous Day, it would be a good time to speak about that. Of course, the Eric Larson solo written for yourself. That's right. How much collaboration did you have with Eric? Well, I know it wasn't. It was a. I mean, uh, we were going to do a, a, an American tour, and we were looking for a new solo. Uh, Lighton had heard me play, and um, and he um, he wrote what he thought a solo that, that would suit me. That, that, that's how that came, came about. Talking of Leiton, I mean, uh, I can remember in Canada, in 1952, and uh, the first time that we, that we met up with him, we played the, the call, and he'd never heard it before. And he'd wrote that years ago, and I remember he sat beside of me, and the tears just ran down his face. I can remember that. Amazing. It really is. Yeah. It's fascinating. And, and talking about tours, I mean, uh, when it was announced, it was a Wednesday night festival in Tunbridge Wells, when it was announced that after all these years, the staff band were going to visit America and Canada. I mean, to cross the Atlantic in those days, come on, it was amazing. The war's only just finished. I mean, uh, anyway, we didn't have any travel uniform or anything, anything like that. 
I mean, the war, I mean, you still had food rationing, for instance. And um, to go then and have this opportunity, and I remember arriving in uh, Heathrow when it was still a, a Royal Air Force station, and it was all Nissen huts. Do you know what the Nissen hut was? I don't know. <laughs> well, they're, they're huts that people used to live in, and a, a, a galvanised thing. Okay. Uh, where where people that, that was their quarters, and that that's, that was Heathrow. Right. And we walked from here to the end of Steve's Garden to get on the plane, and it was a DC four. Right. And I said, I mean, it's a, it was really a real adventure, really a, a big deal. Uh, um, Ray Bose came off his honeymoon to join us there. And we had to drop off in Iceland for the engines to cool down. Really? Yeah. That was that a planned stop or was that unexpected? Oh, no, no, it was a planned <laughs> stop because uh, the engines were get, getting hot. But Charlie Skinner, was a, have you heard the name of Charlie Skinner? I've heard the name, yeah. <laughs> well, he patted and banged on the car, on the pilot's door, please come quick, look, we've got some flipping oil coming out of the <laughs> It wasn't just a leaky bottle of alcohol. The poor captain had to come down with his flipping torch and they'd go along the wing to see him there. No, I said, that's all right, you know, don't worry about that. <laughs> but all, all those sort of little anecdotal. Yeah. <laughs> but then we had to stay and, and for the engines to cool down, that was about five or six hours. Wow. Were you so allowed then, off the plane? Oh, yeah, we were allowed off the plane. It's the only time I've been to Iceland. And then we flew from there to Newfoundland. But but the excitement, the excitement of it all, and being the first to do it, mm. and to do that that travelling like that, General Osborne sanctioned it. And, and just for our listeners, what year was this that the talk took place? 1952. Was this the first time that you had been across oh, yeah. the Atlantic as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. No, my first one, I had to go by boat, which was 1948 with the Welsh Guards Band. Well. That was another a marvellous thing. I mean, there was still food rationing, and then to go on a, 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 a cruise ship that, that just came, came out, out of the war, mm. and, uh, and it's all been refitted out, and it was marvellous. And I remember we, as the musicians, we had to dress for dinner on, on, this, on this cruise ship, when you, it was you really, you know, and it took... The food that we had there was, moment. I mean, once again, everything was, was still rationed. Right. You know, and we, there were shortages. And to, to be able to eat properly and, and lovely menus. And anyway, it, uh, that took us 10 days to get to New York. Crumbs. So, of course, that wasn't the last time that the staff band with yourself went across to America, I believe, as well. In 1962, there was a six-week tour yeah. to America and Canada. Yeah. And we did that with four snow cornets, I can remember that. What, what was it like preparing yourself for six weeks away from home with the band? It was hard. It was hard. And we, we didn't have any days off. We didn't have anything at all. Nothing. We just kept going. It, that, that was very, very hard. That's why I did... Um, Songs in the Heart for the first time, I think. Fantastic. I think it'd be interesting as well to speak a little bit about the instruments that you were playing at the time. Uh, you mentioned before we started yeah, recording well, that you played on a Salvation I mean, Army uh, instrument. I mean, uh, they were, I suppose, you, uh, decent instruments, but, but they weren't in tune. And I, the, I had to humour them when it came to 
uh, with the F's and G's, so when they're just just above the stave, then you know they, they, you used to go very very bright. So you have to do a lot of nipping down. So a lot of playing with these, lis- listening like mad. So this year, twenty twenty two, if listeners are listening in the future, we're celebrating one hundred and fifty years since the birth of Ralph Vaughan Williams. Um, I believe that you met him when he came to a staff band rehearsal. What was that? Not like? only that, I mean, he, he, took, he took the chair and he sat right through the whole programme and he was very, very impressed with the, with the sound of the, of, the, of the instrument. I don't know whether you know, also, prior to that, he'd written a tuba concerto as well, uh, which uh, Catalan premiered it. Anyway, and it was because of that that you had uh, the three Welsh hymn tunes. Did Vaughan Williams work closely with the band when writing that, or did he go away and no, present No, I know, he, he worked through uh, the tuba player, Catlinay. So again, talking about solos um, being written and, and this huge wealth of Salvation Army music that we know today that was yeah. created during that era, another iconic solo that you premiered uh, is Clear Skies. Yeah. Again, did you work with Eric Ball on that solo? Well, once again, again, it was... Um, it was for a, t- a tour, I wanted to the tour, and he'd heard me many times uh, uh, playing, and so, and this is, this is what he came up with. But um, I've still got the manuscript of it, and, and it really is black, and I, I, I played it, and it was, uh, but then it was deemed a little too difficult for it to be published like that, so they, they put out a, an easier version. Still not easy. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, but it, it, all those sort of stuff. But I mean, it's uh, he liked tunes, and, uh, and there's no substitute for a tune, by the way. So, linking on from these iconic pieces of repertoire that we know mm. very well today, I think it would be fair to say that the 1960s were considered golden era for new amazing. Salvation Army amazing. music. Amazing. I mean, all the thing. I mean, uh, uh, particularly. And all new, the new sounds, new notations and things, and getting used to different... I mean, for instance, thinking of Holy War, as, as, a, as a principal, trying to play that and say, well, what's he after? And trying to pitch it, even, on the first go. I mean, absolutely iconic, no doubt about that. And, and how exciting to be the first... When we played that first time... In, in Scotland, just prior to 1965, before the Congress, and so that we had at, at least one run out. But when you think that the second time we played it, and it went immediately onto a record, immediately, and there's just a couple of little clips from the baritone, once again with the intervals. But other than that, it still stands scrutiny today by today's stand. I think that's remarkable. Don't you think that's amazing? It really is a remarkable recording. Uh, it's, a, it's not a manufactured thing. That's a real performance. And I think uh, that's, again, the training that, uh, that you had. You had to get it right first time. No messing about. No, uh, no second chance. What was the band's reaction the first time? So I guess, well, you won't have heard any recordings of the piece prior, so right. actually performing it for the first time in a rehearsal, what was the atmosphere and the reaction like from the band and yourself? Well, I mean, we were, we were breaking new ground completely. I mean, for everybody, even for Bernard, it's, it's, all, it's all new. 
and uh, spend a lot of time with with, with Stedman Allen, obviously, uh, wanting to know exactly what what he's what he's looking for. But uh, well, it broke it broke it all down, and the, and the, it worked. It well, I mean, the, the result speaks for itself, you know. Absolutely. And was it as much of a shock for the band, the big 12-note cluster with all those augmented fourths? Was that as much of a shock for the band playing it the oh, first time as absolutely. it was the audience? Absolutely. I mean, going back a little earlier, when Bram Coles wrote Divine Pursuit, and you'd have, they threw the whole army banding world up the creek because they didn't know how to play 5-4. They would let us go in, or can you come and take a band practice? Can you get us through this 5-4 room? Oh, I can remember that so distinctly. My dad had a hell of a job. Just cope with that. So another iconic piece coming at the end of the 60s, of course, Leslie Condon's The Present Age. Mm. When you first played the piece, was it an instant hit? Was it a real favourite or did no, that well, journey? We had, it in, we had it in dribs and drabs. And I could remember one of the first things that we had, we had this... We couldn't make sense of it. And I said, I didn't know what he was trying to, what, what he was trying to say. But uh, I mean, when, when we got all the other little bits together, it all made sense. But I mean, he, he was telling a story. He was telling a story. And he was able to, to unfold that story to us. It, it, it was wonderful. And, and wonderful times. No doubt about that. The, the army banding, the scene then, and the enthusiasm, and the energy, and the fun, and the excitement that we all had with it. That's, that's the, the thing that remains. And I'm so thankful to thank you to the, for the Lord but they've been experiencing those sort of times and the joy that you had with that. That's precious memories indeed, and thank yeah. you for sharing those. So at the end of all the interviews, I have a few sort of quick-fire questions just to <laughs> sort of rattle off. Some are fairly normal, some are a bit wacky, just to you know, ask you a question you've never been asked before. Uh, so the first of these quick-fire questions is, have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? Well, it, 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 it would be a good competition between both, both the Eric's. Eric Bourne and Eric Larson. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, to narrow down even further, have you got a favourite Salvation Army piece of music? Yes, Easter Glory. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, now, a few more slightly wacky questions. Have you got a most memorable meal that you've ever eaten? <laughs> well, my wife was a, was a wonderful cook. And uh, we used to do a lot of entertaining. Her roast dinners and Yorkshire puddings <laughs> were so well known, and they used to be, and people used to love them. And yes, that that that, that would that, that that would be possibly. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a good with, with choice. With sauce. <laughs> Very nice indeed. Next question: If you could teleport yourself to anywhere in the world right now, where would you go and why? I would, I would stay in London. I think London is still a very exciting place. And uh, after all, it is home. And uh, it's it, it always nice to come back from Australia. Nice to come back to London. Excellent stuff. Now, we're recording this halfway through the second week of the uh, Wimbledon tennis tournament. Any guesses who you think might take the victory? Absolutely no idea, really. <laughs> <laughs> Good Fair enough, don't worry. Um, 
And my final question, a bit of a wacky one, have you got a favourite type of tree? Nothing like the oak, a marvellous oak tree. Excellent. And it's talking it's thinking of strength and power. Good rationale yeah. as well. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Roland, for giving up your time to chat to us today. It's been a real pleasure to hear oh, the stories. Oh, good. Well, it's been, I, I, I've enjoyed it very, very much. I only wish that you young men were going to have the opportunities that, that I had and, and enjoying Salvation Army music. I mean, I'm doing my best to try and keep, keep it going. And uh, we've got to get, find some young people somewhere they're willing to get a, away from a screen and to do 10 or 15 minute practice a day. And I don't know how you're going to do it. Thank you, Roland, for your time and sharing those amazing stories. Now it's time to hand over to Dr Dorothy Gates as we discuss the masterpiece My Comfort and Strength in tribute to composer Brian Bowen, who sadly passed away last month. Well, Dorothy Gates, thank you ever so much for joining us on Fully Scored once again. It's nice to hear your voice um, after oh, probably about 10 episodes, I think. Yeah, I think it was about that. <laughs> Seems a while ago. But so we're really pleased that you can join us today. And we're going to be doing an analysis of uh, Brian Bowen's piece, My Comfort and Strength in Tribute to Brian, who sadly uh, was promoted to glory last month. First of all, before we look in the piece, have you got any memories of Brian that you'd like to share? Yeah, um, Brian was very kind to me when I first started working in my current position. Um, I was very green and uh, needed some help and advice and all that good stuff. And, and Brian was very willing and, and, like I said, very kind um, to me and helped me a great deal. And we developed quite a, a working relationship because we contracted him to do many things. and. Um, I remember um, when his son sadly passed away, we had some good conversations around that time. And then when my brother passed away, um, it was around a similar sort of time. He was very, very compassionate, very kind. Um, and I don't think I'll ever forget that. Um, I'll miss him. Well, thank you for sharing that. My Comfort and Strength of perhaps Brian's best-known work, and I believe his first piece published in the festival series, uh, but I may be wrong, and we're going to have a look at that today. But I wanted to know, where did you first come in contact with this piece and get to know it? I think the first time I actually heard it, I was quite young. Um, and uh, I believe it was Croydon Citadel Band played it in a Sunday morning um as a it was like a big meeting and it was for like sort of preliminary sort of music believe it or not i, I could be wrong about that because uh, it was so long ago but uh i think that's the first time i remember hearing it um first time playing it was with the new york staff band um just a few years ago i had never played it up till that point um of course listened to it lots um because it, it is so so soul-stirring and so beautiful. Fantastic, thank you. And throughout the piece, the tune University, set to the words, the God of love my shepherd is, is used. Could you tell us anything about that tune before we intrinsically look at it in the context of the piece? Yeah, um, it was written by Charles Colignan, I think I said that right. 
um, or attributed to him at least. Um, and it's it's a very, very English sounding um, hymn, I have to say. Um, and it was, it's so Brian too, because I think of him as the quintessential English gentleman. And uh, yeah, I, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> um, I actually went down a bit of a rabbit hole with YouTube looking for the God of Love My Shepherd is and listening to various choirs um, singing it. And uh, my favorite rendition was with uh, the Guildford Cathedral, um, which was actually recorded in 1967, the same year the piece was published. Um, and they do a, a very interesting interpretation um, of the tune, and so I really, I really enjoyed that. But the um, the tune itself, he, he takes it and you know takes little fragments of it and um, creates his own world, his own compositional world, his own sound world from these fragments. And the, the main sort of uh, character of the uh, tune would be this. Uh, descending scale figure at the beginning. He uses that a lot. Um, he uses lots of other stuff too, but that would probably be the main feature of the tune and which he has hooked his uh, compositional skills to. Fantastic. Well, should we dive into the score and talk about the piece? Yeah, why not? Section and uh, see how that tune is used as you just said about there. So let's start, shall we, with the introduction before Letter A. What's going on here in the music? Well, the, even the very first notes are derivative um, from the last phrase of the tune. Um, I was trying to figure out if they were connected to any particular words in any of the verses because they look pretty important because he's got tenutos over the first three. And um, some of the verses, it doesn't really make sense for. There's really only one verse that makes sense uh, for. And that's uh, verse four, uh, the words to guide. Um, the, like verse one, it's just what can. <laughs> verse two, it's in both. <laughs> you know, it's like these, these verses don't really make sense. These words aren't making sense here. Um, I like to sort of think that he, he would be thinking about the words while he's creating this. Um, so that's why I was looking. But uh, as I say, verse four is my closest guess to guide. Um, and uh, he uses these different fragments. Um, the scalic fragment comes in in bar two um, and it's inverted in the bases. Um, the euphonium line is really a modal version of the tune um, and just for a couple of bars. And then this little triplet figure comes in, which I think is just completely original, his own original material. Um, and it serves a lot to develop the piece later on. Um, but yeah, I think that's what's going on in the introduction. He's setting the scene of this beautiful pastoral 23rd Psalm. Mm -hmm. 
fantastic. And we hear it in its, the tune in its first entirety at letter A in the flugelhorn, uh, horns and baritones. Is there anything that we should be looking or listening out for here in section A through to B? I think just the sheer beauty of the mellows um, playing together in this um, setting. It's, it's very beautiful. It's very gentle. And I don't think it should go unnoticed that the flugelhorn has the solo, knowing that Brian played flugel. I, I, I think that's interesting. And obviously with the title, you know, he could have just called it comfort and strength, but he didn't, he chose to put the word my in there. This is a testimony. Um, and uh, I, I think possibly his testimony at letter A. <laughs> Fantastic. And at letter B, then, we have some linking passages and uh, using motifs from the melody. Could you talk us through that section, please? Yeah, letter B, it would be the first episode um, with the meditation form of verse, episode, verse, episode. Um, he's following that um, pretty well. And this first episode he uses the scale figure, the descending scalic figure, um, and some of his own original material as well. But I think what he's doing here is really creating um, a place for meditation um, on the words, on the tune that we've just heard. Um, and the verse that, that the words of the verse, um, the God of love my shepherd is, and he that doth me feed, while he is mine and I am his, what can I want or need? It, it ends with a question. Um, and I think in the first episode here, he's pondering that question. Well, what can I want or need? And indeed, am I his? Is he mine? You know, that's sort of, that's the feeling I get from it. Um, and in fact, to that point, um, the words I am his two bars before B um, he takes that little quiver note I, I think he takes that little quiver note uh, on I am his and uh, uses it in bar three and takes you starts taking you leading you to F minor um, at the Ritz bar um, and it, I think just that sort of uh, deceptive way that he does that I think it's, it's kind of intriguing um, and I think also what I like about it is at, let, at the start of letter B is the contrast in scoring um, from the mellows to the brights um, now he's got the trombones and the cornets and it's a it's a, a lovely stark contrast to the, the beautiful um, mellow first verse and uh, takes us, leads us into the whole next section. How does Brian treat the tune here differently at section C? treats it in uh, like a canon um, there's different canonic entries um, 
and it's 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 very interesting. But he also the scoring is very light. It's very chamber esque, um, just one on a part, um, six players. You know, it's 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 even more intimate. It's even more personal. Um, so he's he's diving deeper into the song and and diving deeper into the uh, the meaning of it. I think. Does that relate to the words of the second verse? Well, let's see. <laughs> he leads me to the tender grass where I both feed and rest, then to the streams that gently pass. In both, I have the best. Yeah, I think it does. Hmm. I think it does. Um, it's still very, it's a very, very personal psalm, obviously, and and, and the words that have have been um, used um, are to paraphrase it are, are very personal too so yeah I think it does fantastic so letter D the tempo picks up slightly what's happening in the music at section D at letter D this is the second episode um, which is going to lead us to the third setting and this episode is a little longer um, and wanders a little bit um, harmonically, um, leading us to uh, a new key when we get to the next setting. Um, but he uses, in this setting, he uses the last phrase of the tune. And he also he still uses that scalic figure, but it, it's inverted some of the time. And he also uses bar three of the tune. He uses a lot. And there's a lovely, lovely spot halfway through um, where he's got that sequence. It's just beautiful, and the, the sequential treatment of that is just really divine, I think. And leading out of that in the baritones and the euphoniums is the tune and augmentation. It's just so well-crafted, so beautiful how he puts it all together. And then that leads us with this sense of urgency into uh, letter E. So letter E is the cornet's time to take over with the melody, but we're here with a much thicker accompaniment. What's, yeah, what's yeah. a few things to look out for in this section? Well, again, the scalic figure is used intensely. And there's um, some syncopation going on that just adds to the angst and the uh, agitation. Um, and it's it's all very skillfully woven together um, but the sound of the cornets and the horns with the phoneme underneath is is beautiful and th with that skillic figure rising out of it to the high flugel and, and high horn um, in bar three of E that is just heavenly I mean it just takes you heavenward I don't know what verse this is supposed to represent. At first, I thought maybe with all the uh, 
the, the quavers and whatnot, that it was uh, the river. But then with that beautiful scalic pattern leading you heavenward, I wondered if it, this was verse four about, you know, death or, but then it is so divine. I wasn't sure. <laughs> and I can't ask him, unfortunately. There is a part of verse four that's strength in faith and uh, not being afraid in death. Um, it says, yea, in death's shady black abode, well may I walk, not fear. So I, I think it might be, but I, again, I don't know. It's my best guess. <laughs> Fantastic. I find it really interesting there in section E how the bass completely drops out. So it does make it sound like this angelic choir, because of course, bass is yeah. very, very far from heaven, as we all know. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say that. <laughs> Excellent. So that takes us through to Section F, where once again, the music changes style and, and feel. Could you talk us through Section F, please? Well, Section F is the start of the third episode, because the third episode is actually F and G this time. And it's the largest one um, by far. And there's much more expression, much more creativity. And I think each of these episodes are a time to meditate on what we've heard before. And this is this one's actually quite melancholy. I think he is meditating on 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 death. The cornet figure is what I find interesting before G, five before G. It's almost reminiscent of like the last post or something. Um, harmonized and just sort of beautiful and angelic like you said earlier is actually a looking forward um, it changes um, again brighter brighter key brighter scoring thicker scoring much thicker scoring and leading us looking forward to letter H for the last statement of the the tune um, and I find in this preparation for the tune that there's a rhythmic similarity actually to the opening at letter G at the start, just rhythmic, not harmonic or anything, just a rhythmic similarity. Um, and I find them um, just building this sense, sense of strength um, that's gonna come at letter H and is apparent in letter G as well. Fantastic. And when we get to H, once again, the melodies passed over to the mellow saxhorn family in the band. And what a majestic setting of the melody this is. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's fantastic. Um, it's an augmentation. So double the time, double the rhythm. Um, and that adds to the majesty of it, as well as these fantastic fanfares in the cornets and the trombones um such 
uh, regal music, really. I mean, it could quite easily be used for a coronation. Um, it's, it might well be next year. <laughs> it might well be, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful. It's that kind of music. My favorite moment is, uh, or one of the great moments in the piece is bar four of H, where it shifts to G minor. And then it just keeps getting stronger and stronger. The the score just, you know, my, it's called my comfort and strength. And I think from letter G to the end is my strength. And I think the beginning up to letter G is my comfort. But from G to the end, it's it's just strength after strength after strength. And it, it just keeps building till you feel like you can't take, you know, one more level of strength. Um, but he, he continues to give us that. Um, and it's really wonderful. The last 10 bars is really sort of a coda, I think. This is even stronger than before. And there's a, the climax of the piece, the great moment is um, the fifth bar from the ad tempo at Excel, right on that high B flat for the cornets. It's just divine. It's a D flat chord in the middle of B flat. And it's, it's really beautiful. But this, this strength that just keeps building to that point and, and stays strong in B flat to the end shows that Brian knew his God and his King. Um, he knew him intimately and that he was his strength. He was his comfort. And may that be true of us too. God is our strength, our comfort. I mean, this piece, you can't listen to it and not be moved in that direction. Thank you, Dorothy, for your time recording and preparing for that analysis. It's now time for Arid Island Album. In this episode, we're joined by Divisional Music Director in Chicago, Peter Kim. Peter. 
Peter Kim, thank you ever so much for joining us on Arid Island Album. How are you keeping? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. Mm -hmm. It's a nice sunny day here in the UK, which always is a nice change, but helps. So, before we find out what your Arid Island choice would be, I thought it'd be nice to get to know you a little bit better and for our listeners to get to know you. So my first question is, how long have you been a Salvationist for? Well, that's a good question. I just had my birthday, so I'm now 54 years old. So I am have been Salvationist for 54 years. I was born in the, um, into the Salvation Army family. I'm the fourth generation Salvationist from the South Korea. Fantastic. And uh, you now work for the Salvation Army. Could you explain a little bit about your role and how you came to have this role? I used to have my own business, um, but God has uh, urged me. And I, but I served at the core level since I was 18, being a core music leader for a long, long time. My parents actually opened a Korean ministry uh, in the United States in 1980. That's the time that I uh, moved over from South Korea to USA, Los Angeles. Uh, the music ministry was part of my life for a long time, but God has urged me to go in as a full-time music ministry. So in 2006, I took a role as a core music director uh, for 12 years in Chicago area. Um, and then God, again, uh, urged me to go to the, uh, the weakest division in the Central Territory. It used to be called Heartland Division. So I served it for four years before it got merged into the Chicago area division called Metropolitan Division. Now it is uh, merged together since the uh, 1st of July uh, this year. And now I get to oversee the whole North and Central Illinois Division. Now it's a new name, with a new name, and I oversee about 38 um, cores and about 12 uh, to 15 centers that I, uh, I serve. Fantastic. And do you enjoy it? I love the ministry. Yes, I love enjoy. I love meeting people. I love meeting youth and setting up the program so that and see the joy that uh, the music brings. And uh, well, number one goal for me is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, I think, Salvation Army has a, a unique a way of doing that through music. So I think that uh, formula has been working for years and years and years. And that is the tradition I would like to continue to do and bring people together to praise the Lord. And, and for those who doesn't know Christ, will make uh, introduce Christ through music. Music is just the hook. It's old saying, but it still works well. Fantastic. That's absolutely mm -hmm. brilliant. Thank you for that. And you're also a former member of the Chicago Staff Band. Have you got any highlights from your time in the band? Yes, uh, many highlights. Um, but uh, one of the things, I was the first uh, Korean um, to join the Chicago Staff Band, meeting Bill Hines, um, uh, fellowshipping with Peggy Thomas's and all the uh, icons of the Salvation um, Army, learning and um, getting mentored by them and trained by them was a biggest highlights that I had. So now we come on to the all important question and get to find out what your album choice would be. If you were stranded on an arid and deserted island, what album would you take with you and why? 
Yes, I was in this album, so <laughs> a little biased. But 1994, the Canadian staff band celebrated 25th anniversary, and the first staff band, um, international staff band, and uh, Canadian and uh, Chicago and New York staff band. Um, and that album um, is two CDs. So I will take that at any time. Fantastic. Have you got a favorite track on the album? The first one, Fanfare Praise by Robert Redhead, was the, I think that was the first time I ever heard it. By international staff and that just over blew me away and I also at the end uh, the brass benediction God be with you by Bill Gordon um, we surrounded the whole theater um, and it was spectacular um, uh, it was a, such a blessing to uh, be connected at and be part of that experience fantastic well thank you so much Peter for your time there and a great album choice we wish you all the best for the future in your role and hope to hear from you again in the future sometime Thank you, Peter, for your time and album choice. Now, have you ever wondered what it takes to be a Bandmastermind champion? Well, wonder no more, as today could be your day. In this special edition of Bandmastermind, we're putting you in the hot seat. I'm going to ask 10 band trivia questions. See how many you know and send us in your answers. We'll announce the answers and listeners champion at the end of the month. Fully scored listener, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Here are your questions. What year was the Japan Staff Band formed? How many pieces begin with the letter Z in the Triumph series? For a bonus point, can you name any one of them? What was the name of the 1990 Canadian Staff Band Studio album? What piece was voted number one in the Salvation Army Music Index Hall of Fame in 2019? Who was Eric Lysden's Concerto for Trombone dedicated to? Ray Stedman Allen set the lyrics of God of All Wonders to music by Czech composer. The piece was titled Poem, but who was the composer? What is the name given to the third movement of Eric Ball's Songs of the Morning? Talking about Eric Ball, who wrote the biography Eric Ball, The Man and His Music? And finally, which cornet solo was written for William Scarlett, a former member of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Chicago Staff Band? Send us in your answers on our social media platforms by the end of November and you could just be our next Band Mastermind Listener's Champion. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this episode. But as ever, if you wish to hear more and keep up to date with all things Fully Scored, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can also subscribe to the podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to be instantly notified each time a new episode is available. Before we go, a few thanks. Thank you ever so much to our guests, Roland, Dorothy and Peter, for giving up your time to be part of the podcast. We really do appreciate it. 
thank you to our producer, Simon Gash, for all the work you do in stitching each episode together. Rumour has it you had a full head of hair before you started producing this podcast. Thank you to Wobplay for hosting this podcast and the associated playlist alongside it. Thank you to the strange whispers in the wind that are the band nerds for the band mastermind trivia. And thank you to our listeners. Did you know that thanks to your listens, we've consistently been making it into the top 100 podcasts on the Apple Music Podcast charts in the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, the Netherlands, Nigeria and even the Bahamas. Until next time, goodbye and God bless.